Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Uh, so how are you feeling today, this Wednesday, November 9th? Hey, uh, well, you know what we didn't have happen? We didn't get buried in a red tsunami. There was no red wave. Right now, at this moment in time, at this moment in the universe, who has control of the House and who has control of the Senate isn't um, set in stone. Yes, it looks like Kevin McCarthy may uh, pull out more races than the Dems will in the House. It's a possibility. But the Senate baby? Good question. There's going to be a runoff in Georgia. Neither Raphael Warnock nor Herschel Walker got um, enough votes to take the election. So the two of them are going to be in a runoff election. That's probably going to take uh, three or four weeks. So we get to hear more campaign speeches More crazy sound bites from Herschel Walker. Lucky, lucky us. Arizona and Nevada, those Senate races are, have not been called. Now in Arizona, Mark Kelly, the Democrat incumbent, has a commanding lead, but the powers that be, um, will not call that race because there are still too many outstanding votes. So, um, (laughs) congratulations you know we were supposed to get creamed in this election we were supposed to drown in the red wave that was going to swamp us that didn't happen folks we may very well yet control the senate and as i said there are still a number of seats up that have not been called in the House of Representatives. Probably, you know, the way it looks right now, um, there will probably be more Republicans grabbing those last up-in-the-air seats than there will be Democrats. Um, But (laughs) congratulations to us. We were supposed to be buried, and right now, I'm telling you, the All the major media outlets are saying, mm, too close to call. Here's how we think it's going to end up, too close to call. Good for us. Good for us. Uh, here in Illinois, we did in Cook County, we did okay that little bit of extra money on our property taxes for the Forest Preserve. It looks like the Workers' Rights Amendment is passed. Woohoo! Bill Foster won, Brad Schneider won, Mike Quigley won, Roger Krishnamurthy won, Delia Ramirez in the new uh, third district won, Sean Caston won, Jonathan Jackson won, <sighs> John Fetterman won in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so, it was a good night. You know what? Oh, oh my God, I forgot the Supreme Court race. Both Mary Kay O'Brien and Elizabeth Liz Rochford won. Oh, whew, whew. what a relief. What a relief. Because if you don't think Republicans in the state of Illinois 
would have used a Republican Supreme Court to throw out a woman's right to have authority over her own body, you are mistaken because they made it quite plain that that was indeed what they wanted to do. Kentucky uh, has affirmed that they want a woman to continue to have the right to choose. Oregon voters said yes to a ban on high-capacity magazines and requiring a permit to purchase firearms. This has been a good midterm for Democrats, whether or not Kevin McCarthy winds up with a couple of extra seats in Congress. Uh, Steve from the Gold Coast is uh, calling. Let's, uh, let's talk to him. Let's talk to him, Andy. Put Steve on. Hey, Steve, how are you today? Well, finally get to get some rest after many weeks of work. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, you basically have three states. It's up to what's going to happen in terms of Arizona and Nevada. And then, of course, there's a runoff in Georgia that's been announced. Um, that will probably be the most expensive such race in the history of the country, uh, depending upon you know where, where things uh, end up in terms of the other races. But no matter what, I still I would contend that it's going to be extremely expensive because every vote counts, as we know. Um, so, Oh, my gosh, yes. And given we have at least two Democrats who you cannot rely upon, it would be nice to have 51 or 52, you know, if we, we could get that that number. Um, having said that, you know, a little bit more analysis. Um, the, the other message here is that not only was there no red wave, but, you know, Trump candidates did not fare well in this. And they did not, they did they? They did not. And I, hmm. I, you're hearing a message, you know, clearly from Americans that, that, that they want moderation, that they want government to work together, um, that they're rejecting, um, that they hate, that is the, the message of the, and, and polarization that came out of Donald Trump. Now, I'm not saying that Ron DeSantis is a great guy or anything, but I think that uh, as of yesterday, uh, who is the de facto sort of leader of the Democratic Party may have shifted from Donald Trump to Ron DeSantis. And, you know, and, that's what a lot of people are saying. You know, Ron DeSantis yeah, yeah. won handily and he's, um, you know, he's been making speeches about um, how he feels about things and how he wants to. He's been implying that he wants to run for president, like the things he's doing in Florida, he thinks would be good for the entire country as a whole. Uh, we will we will see yeah. about that. You know, here's oh, the interesting yeah. thing. As you pointed out, Steve, a lot of the Trump hand selected candidates did not win in these midterm elections. But Kevin McCarthy, by all accounts, who believes that the House is going to go his way, is supposedly feverishly on the phones today trying to negotiate deals with people to vote for him for Speaker of the House. One of the points that uh, Jamie Gangel brought up on CNN today was don't count Donald Trump out in this particular venue. If Donald Trump decides that he's still mad at Kevin McCarthy, that Kevin McCarthy isn't loyal enough to him, then Donald Trump could be working behind the scenes to get somebody more Trump friendly in the speaker's chair. What do you think about that, Steve? Yeah, and I think that that's a, that's a possibility, certainly. I mean, Trump isn't, isn't dead. It's, I guess, <laughs> it's been dealt a, a good blow at this point. But, you know, as so many people have noted, you know, it, it's not just about winning the House back for the Republicans. It's about the margins, you know, because, you know, if you have a large margin, then you can get a lot of things through. 
But this, will, but uh, with what Kevin McCarthy is going to have to work with, which is a very, very narrow margin in terms of what, what is likely to come out, what numbers are likely to be in the end. I mean, he's going to have to really negotiate because there are plenty of people in his own party who are going to be willing to work with people on the other side of the aisle. So this whole notion of you know you've got to stand with us on everything. Uh, there are plenty of people who are, who are moderate Republicans who are come from same you know, districts and same states who are like, no, I'm not going to stand with you on something crazy. I'd like to get reelected. So this yeah. presents a problem for, for him and the, the Trumpites. So, well, uh, we have I, seen, uh, we know who Kevin McCarthy is. He is literally a man who has no defining principles. I mean, he spoke out against Trump after January 6th, and then just a matter of weeks later, he's down in Mar-a-Lago making nice with Donald, Donald Trump. I mean, this is a guy... Who has, I've, I heard this criticism of him before. There was something going on a year or so ago. And one of the Republicans I was talking to said, you know, ordinarily we would look to the minority leader as somebody who leads, who says, okay, we've got this sticky issue. This is the way we need to go on it. Let's all fall in line. And they said instead, what Kevin McCarthy is doing is like calling everybody up and saying, well, what do you think? What do you think I should do? What would you like me to do? And that's who Kevin McCarthy is. And the rumors I'm hearing today are that the uh, very most conservative members of Congress are not necessarily opposed to Kevin McCarthy being the next speaker as long as he does what they want, gives them the concessions they want, and as speaker behaves in a way that they want him to. In other words, they're okay supporting him if he agrees to be their puppet. And the Kevin McCarthy I know is if he's if he's nothing else, he's very very much puppet material. I I see him being essentially a figurehead speaker that just does what he's told to do. I don't know. Maybe you think I'm being too too cynical. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, those of us who remember January 6th, and, you know, that we thought that, you know, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of Republicans. And, and you know, those hours immediately after so many of them stood up and said, you know, this is, this is uh, that bridge too far, and we need to hold Donald Trump and his followers accountable. A couple of days later, you know, they, they held their fingers up to the wind and said, wait, you know, the base still supports this guy. It completely changed their perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, they, they fell in line. And that's what we've been living with for now. Now that the midterms are over, you know, I think America is starting to turn away from that. You know, don't get me wrong, again, there are still the Trumpites, the crazy people out there. But in terms of their capacity to govern the Republican Party, I think it's been diminished significantly. And if, if anything, uh, if we've learned anything about general elections, the presidential elections, is that, uh, that we have a, a huge advantage as Democrats going in. So just holding our ground here, I'm happy not to lose ground and not, <laughs> in, not to see things repealed that we've managed to get past. And if we can yeah. hold out and win in 2024, we could perhaps take again all three houses and perhaps with some uh, with larger margins. So, you know, sometimes sometimes a win is just not losing ground right a holding action in the military mm-hmm. just to hold on to what you have until the next election absolutely absolutely i think that i think that whether or not every candidate we wanted to support and wanted to see in office won this midterm election is nothing but a victory for democrats 
You know, they said a year and a half ago we were going to get buried. It was going to be a landslide. It was going to be devastation. And not only was it not a landslide and not devastation, you know, we are we are holding our own. You know, it's it's if there's you know whether or not we hang on to the House, we're only going to lose it by a few seats. And it looks like we have a good chance of hanging on to the Senate. Yay, us. Give credit. And I'll give credit where credit's due, because I've been among those people who has taken the task, young people, for not participating in the process. They seem to have shown up under 30 voters to to participate this this midterm election. So kudos to them. I hope that they continue to show up. Um, But, you know, again, this this is anything but, you know, victory for the Republicans. And thank God for that. Amen. Amen to that. And, you know, I have to say, I'm glad if we did end up, if we do end up losing our our majority in the House, the Republicans, A, are going to have a much slimmer majority than they thought they were going to have. And frankly, I couldn't be happier than seeing them go after one another the way they're doing now. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, six months ago was saying, well, you know, if if we take the House, there is no guarantee that we're all going to support Kevin McCarthy. You know, um, there is no we don't we're not making any promises. We're not lining up behind him. And I don't think that that Kevin McCarthy is going to be able to accomplish anything along the lines of what Nancy Pelosi did with her slim majority, because I think that uh, the Republicans who are currently in elected office are too all over the map and they are not going to fall in line. Oh, absolutely. And beyond that, I mean, they can they can throw uh, against the wall whatever they like as far as legislation. And if if the Senate is is either 50 50 or a slight uh, Democratic advantage in the White House is held by the man who has the veto, you know, then, then you're not going to get anything passed anyway, you know, in terms of your agenda. I mean, they, they'll hold hearings. Mark my words, uh, uh, you know, I, I give it even money that they'll try and impeach Joe Biden on something crazy. But beyond that, you know, I, I don't know what they'll, what they'll be able to do other than be obstructionist in terms of what we want to get done. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Thank you for the call, Steve. Thank I you. appreciate you. Um, I want to give you a few more results some of them good for us, some of them not. Um, we're talking about Pennsylvania, because as you know, I'm strangely obsessed with Pennsylvania. Fetterman did defeat Mehmet Oz. Yay. Josh Shapiro defeated Doug Mastriano, and he is going to be the governor. And it isn't just those. Um, there is also news that Democrats have flipped the House of Representatives in Pennsylvania, in the State House, uh, Representative Joanna McClinton is poised to become the first woman to serve as the Pennsylvania Speaker of the House. Joanna McClinton, Democrat. Pennsylvania, you go, you blue wave state, you. Josh Shapiro defeating that whack job, Doug Mastriano. Fetterman defeating Oz and uh, the uh, state house is now majority Democrat in Pennsylvania. Isn't that wonderful? By the way, I was running through uh, some of the races here in Illinois. I know for those of you just tuning in, Bill Foster won, Brad Schneider won, Mike Quigley won, Roger Christen-Morthy won, uh, Delia Ramirez won in the new third, Sean Caston won. 
Um, and Eric Sorensen in Illinois 17 has won. We uh, here in Illinois, our congressional delegation looks like it's shaping up to be 14 Democrats, three Republicans. And uh, here's the interesting thing. When uh, the remap was put through the new remap based on the new census, that is exactly what Democrats predicted. They looked at the map and they said, this is what we think we this is what we think we can do. We think we can send 14 Democrats to Congress. And by God, we did. In uh, the governor's race in Arizona, Katie Hobbs, Carrie Lake, it's described as Katie Hobbs has a slight edge, but it's described as too close to call. The um, recorder of Maricopa County said last night that it was going to take a long time before the votes were counted there because they had so many mail-in ballots that that was not going to be a race that was going to be decided quickly. So how much of a surprise was this? You know, we talk about how the mainstream media, particularly I have found fault with the New York Times, which has, I think, fallen victim to whataboutism. You know, jobs numbers are great, but what will, what about what Biden is going to do in two months? You know, inflation uh, starting to level off and come down, but can Biden keep it that way? I mean, it has made me insane. So the New York Times print edition, of course, goes to bed, gets locked down and printed. It can't be updated the way the digital edition can. So what was the New York Times thinking last night? Well, if you don't receive the actual physical paper delivered to your home, let me share with you their headline before they changed it. GOP collects early wins in pivotal vote. Would you like to know the digital headline right now? Georgia race heads to runoff with the Senate in play. Oh, backed away there, New York Times. Did you? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you believe your own hype? The New York Times polls were some of the most inaccurate polling. Now that we know the results and we can look back and say in the final few weeks, the way the New York Times told us, the New York Times was one of those places predicting a red wave. You know, when I was a journalist a thousand years ago, uh, the New York Times was really considered the paper of record in this country. It was considered the most even-handed, unbiased, the facts is the facts paper. It is not that anymore. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people try to explain why. Well, they're, you know, they don't want to get yelled at by the right you know, they're so afraid of appearing to be left-leaning that they bend in the direction of the right because they get less grief. You know, the Democrats don't call them up and yell at them for their headlines the way Republicans do. And they're just trying to, you know, they're just trying to be safe and careful and don't want to get yelled at. And then I've talked to people who've speculated that this move to be a more right-leaning paper 
is actually intentional. The way a newspaper is structured, most of them, now that there have been cost-cutting, sometimes this isn't the case, but um, for big papers that have big budgets, the headline writing department is not the same as the reporting department. Like, you could be a reporter, turn in a story, but you don't write the headline. You Maybe you suggest something, but you don't write it. So uh, whoever the headline department is taking their marching orders from clearly is more worried about backlash from the right than backlash from the left because they and, and here's why that's a problem, not just because it's my previous profession and I don't like to see it get away from the lines that it has always followed, but people are influenced by that. You know, when when inflation is coming down and gas prices are coming down, and yet the headlines you read are all, oh, people are worried, Biden's not doing a good job, Biden's approval rating's falling. That influences the way you think. That influences, you know, people do these surveys, well, you know, how do you like Joe Biden? Joe Biden is going to go down as one of the most effective presidents we've ever had, simply based on what he's done in the first two years. Infrastructure bill, build back better, the chip bill, hello, holding Western Europe together to support Ukraine. He's accomplished an insane amount. He really, history is going to look at him as one of our most effective presidents ever. But you wouldn't know that from reading the headlines in the New York Times. You wouldn't know that at all. You'd think, oh, he's um, he's okay, but 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 he's just mediocre. Look at his record. Look at what he's done. I don't care if he's a 100 years old. He's accomplished more than a lot of presidents who had more votes and, uh, and, and a younger demographic behind him. All right, I digress. We need to get to a break. We're going to be talking politics today. Let's get started right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Joined now by former Illinois Congressperson Joe Walsh, also spent some time uh, talking conservative politics on the radio. Now he's working with the Courier Newsrooms and is pretty much on cable news uh, 24-7. Every time I turn in any cable news program, I see Joe Walsh. And I have to say, Joe, I love when you make those appearances because you talk in a way I can understand, and yet you're passionate, and you have great ideas that you are you articulate beautifully. So um, you're one of the people, if I see you on the cable news, I will keep it on until you're finished talking. So kudos to you. Well, damn you, Joan Esposito, because <laughs> I was going to start this phone call by just saying I'm such a big fan of yours, <laughs> and you beat me to all of that. That's not fair. Well, Joe, if you say you're a fan of mine, it just proves that you're old and you remember me from a very long time ago. So I, I, I don't know if I'd spread that around too much. So um, what, do, you know, former conservative, former Tea Party member, what do you think yeah. about what we've seen this midterm? 
I, I, I'm, I went to bed last night. I actually didn't go to sleep last night because I was on cable news all night. <laughs> but when I finally did have a cup of coffee in the morning, I smiled at Joan because I really think way more Americans care about our democracy than all these so-called experts give them credit for. And I think that's a big part of what happened last night. Yeah. Turnout was uh, much higher in many places than was expected. And while I haven't seen the demographic breakdowns, it looks yeah. like um, young people who traditionally are not our our strongest uh, voters who turn out, yeah. it looks like they turned out in much greater numbers than we've seen, than, certainly than we saw in 2018. It looks like young people came out. It looks like young women came out. Uh, and I think we're going to find that a lot of independents who were undecided uh, you know, OK, they're not super happy about inflation and some of the things Biden's done. But then they looked over here, Joan, and all they saw on the Republican side were a bunch of crazy conspiracy laden election deniers. And they thought, I don't want to vote for somebody who who won't accept the results of an election. I just think that was there more than we thought. Yeah. And I also was amazed when I was hearing pundits the last few weeks saying, well, you know, women, you know, abortion was a big deal when it happened, but women got over it. You know, it's like it's yeah. not going to be a big factor in this. And I was thinking, seriously, you you think we got over it? You think we what put it in the rearview window? I mean, um, I I that did. There. That you, there. you bet you it was there. It was there in spades. Um, speaking of crazy candidates. In Georgia, we are now looking at a runoff between uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, I think, is quite possibly not only the worst candidate of this last election cycle, but quite possibly the worst candidate for office I have ever I have ever known in my entire life. And yet and yet they're in a runoff. Can you explain that to me, Mr. Walsh? Well, Joan, I will quibble with what you said at the start. I only in that to me, Donald Trump is the worst candidate for any office I've ever seen in my life. But I understand what you're saying. Look, it's just at this point, my former political party, Joan, would vote for anything um, to win. And. Uh, for those of us who are worried about Republicans controlling the Senate, this runoff's going to be tough. Herschel has a really decent chance of beating Warnock. What we can hope for is that Donald Trump inserts his ugly mug into that race in the next month and a half. Because if Trump's in Georgia, that will help bring Democrats out. Hmm. I think you're right. I think that the people who voted for Herschel Walker uh, were people that weren't voting necessarily for Herschel Walker, but no, you're, they no. wanted the Republicans to win. They wanted a Republican majority. They they wanted um, because I, when, I guess when I said the worst candidate, I think, yes, Donald Trump was um, ignorant and evil. But honestly, Joe, and I don't say this with any glee. I think Herschel Walker is brain damaged. I think he has um, 
uh, well, by his own admission, he suffers from a dissociative personality disorder. I think he is uh, cognitively impaired from his years of getting beaten up on the football football. field. And I think he's just sad. And I don't care. I don't if he were a Democrat, even I don't know if I could vote for him, even if I wanted the Dems to have a majority. I was, Joan, I was early on, I was critical of uh, Fetterman and some of the Democrats just automatically supporting Fetterman. But there's a big difference in that Fetterman had a stroke and he's recovering. Um, And as you said, there's a difference with Herschel Walker. I think Herschel Walker has like a permanent cognitive condition. I do, too. it's It's like the party is just holding him up um, and, and trying to carry him to some victory when he's utterly unfit. Well, it's like that pastor in Georgia said, I think Jamal Bryant um, from the from the pulpit that, you know, basically white men have been telling Herschel Walker to, what to do ever since he was like 14 years old and on his way to being a football star. And if and if he ends up in the Senate, it's going to be the same thing. Um, white men in the Senate telling him how to vote, telling him what to say. And I don't think that's far off. No. And they and and they will, Joan. And there's also like a good versus evil aspect to this. Even though I left the Republican Party, I still talk to Republican voters every day. And they've told me about Herschel, and they've said the same thing about Trump. Like, Trump is a flawed man. Herschel's a flawed man. But, Joe, they're fighting evil. The Democrats and the socialists are evil. God works in mysterious ways. And I I hear a lot of that. And I, I find it to be just really sad. Is it all about abortion, Joe? Is that what makes Democrats evil? Or is there more to it? No, I think it's I think there's more to it. I think it's they want their 1950s America back um, and they believe the Democrats and the socialists and the media and academia. Everybody's taken it away from them. The, The nice, simple, easy to understand 1950s America. They want that back. And Trump. Uh, it's like they don't believe the democratic process can give that back, that America back to them anymore. So they want a bad man, a strong man, a dictator to just make it happen. And Joan, they've told me this. I'm, I'm not inventing this. This is part of what they've told me over the years. Oh, I can't tell you how sad that makes me. That makes me oh, feel. It is, sad. it is sad. It is sad. Um, Joe, I want to take a quick break. When we come back, you know, by all accounts, Kevin McCarthy is uh, pretty sure he's going to be Speaker of the House. And um, he is, as they say, working the phones really hard to try to figure out what he has to do for each and every person to get those votes. I want to talk to you about that. That man and that process when we come back. I'm talking to Joe Walsh. He works uh, for the Courier Newsrooms and he's on cable TV. Used to be one of our Congress people. We'll be back with more after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. You're listening to WCPT820. Because facts matter. 
Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I'm speaking with Joe Walsh, uh, once upon a time, a Tea Party member, member of Congress from Illinois, conservative radio talk show host, now a, a voice for reason and moderation, <laughs> however, uh, however, that makes his former uh, friends feel. Um, I wanted to ask you, Joe, about Kevin McCarthy. I see a man who has no values who has no stands, who uh, will literally blow in the wind uh, to get whatever attention he is seeking at any given time. Supposedly, he's working the phones right now, desperately trying to line up support. Um, supposedly, some of the Freedom Caucus members are apparently willing to get behind him as long as he gives them all the concessions they are asking for. It seems to me that, you know, he may get the title that he wants, but he's setting himself up to be a miserable puppet. What do you think? What do you see? I agree with everything you just said, Joan. Uh, I served with McCarthy. I know him well. He is a hollow man. He has no core. He would step over his mother in the middle of a highway to become Speaker of the House. It's all he cares about. Um, He sold his soul to Donald Trump. He sold his soul to Marjorie Taylor Greene and the other crazies to become Speaker. And they cut a deal. They'll they'll vote for him for Speaker and he'll give them what they want. Uh, But now, like last night happened, and he's going to have a really slim majority. So the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world are really upset with him right now. But it'll all work out for McCarthy. He'll cut another deal. But you're right, Joan. The de- here's the story. Kevin McCarthy will get the title, but Marjorie Taylor Green will be the de facto speaker. I think you're 100% right. And, you know, it wasn't all that many months ago where she was publicly saying, well, you know, even if we take back the House doesn't necessarily mean we're all going to get behind Kevin McCarthy. Um, The other question, do you think Donald Trump still supports him? Because that relationship has run hot and cold. And I think Donald Trump, if Donald Trump makes a few phone calls, he could potentially prevent McCarthy from being speaker. What do you think about his role? Uh, he could. He, in, in fact, Trump will be the one to broker, ultimately broker the deal between Marjorie Taylor Greene, the other crazies, and McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy cannot do it without Trump's support, publicly or privately. Uh, the thing McCarthy has going for him is Donald Trump uh, is pissed off right now, humiliated, and he wants to run for president again. He wants to come out sometime this month and announce he's going to need to make sure that all his Republicans in the house are happy. Uh, So he'll cut a deal with McCarthy. Hmm. So youth, I think he Trump will announce too. I've heard people speculate that it could be as early as this coming Monday that he announces. Um, But I've also of some other people I respect have said, no, he stands to lose too much money. If he announces anything, it'll just be that he's forming a committee to explore running. 
I'm not so sure about that. I think his his ego demands that he run, and I think he wants to get in there and declare uh, before Ron DeSantis does. What do you think about that? I think he announces. I think he runs. I think this party is his. I don't think anything that happened last night weakened him. And I think when Donald Trump uh, announces and runs, I don't think any other Republican will challenge him. I don't think Mike Pence will. I don't think Mike Pompeo will. I don't think Ron DeSantis will, because ultimately he is still the leader of of the cult of the Republican Party cult. And it's it's really hard to take out the cult leader. And so so I, I think he'll go unchallenged if he wants it. Well, the Ron DeSantis, that's that's the $64,000 question, whether or not he has the stones to enter the race if Trump is already in the race. My speculation is that if Trump announces that Ron DeSantis would let it play out, and if at some point it looks like Trump is mortally wounded or the writing seems to be on the wall that he's going to lose, do you think Ron DeSantis would jump in there as a kind of a Republican savior? That's actually a good point, Joan. I hadn't thought about that. I don't think to say I know DeSantis. I don't think he has the stones to challenge Trump. I also know that DeSantis doesn't have the charisma to get in a ring with Trump. I mean, I don't like Donald Trump. You don't. But the guy is really good at what he does. Uh, Ron DeSantis doesn't have any of that personality (laughs) or any of that charisma. He is just a dud. And I think Trump would eat him alive. And I think Trump would hurt DeSantis politically. And DeSantis is young. Why, why, why risk that? Um, I know that I'm on really, I'm on really thin ice here, but let's, let's, oh, what the hell? Let's do it. Um, let's look at 2024. If Joe Biden is not in the picture for whatever reason, Uh, How do you see the Democrats stacking up right now? I worry, Joan, as as a former Republican who doesn't want my party to my former party to succeed. I I really worry about this Democratic Party. I I like Biden. I've supported him. Um, There's a part of me that doesn't want him to run again because he is too old. And it's not just an age thing. Joe has slowed down. Bernie Sanders is what, like 81 or two? Bernie still has the energy of like a 40-year-old. So it's not the number. But after Biden, Joan, I don't know who could take on a Trump or a DeSantis. We are living in a populist moment where people are pissed off at our politics. I need to see a Democratic woman or man who can roll up their sleeves and fight. And I think that's what voters want. And I don't see that in the Democratic Party right now. I have not studied him, nor have I listened to a lot of his speeches. But um, by all accounts, people seem to be pretty impressed with Gavin Newsom. I I'm concerned about that only because I think that there's a real prejudice in the rest of the country against anybody coming out of California. Um, (laughs) But, you know, maybe you are more familiar with his um, oratory than I am. What do you think of Gavin Newsom? I give him credit in that he's recognized what what I just said, what you've said, that, that the Democrats need a fighter. And if you listen to Newsom the last number of months, he's tried to stake out that position that he's a fighter. 
But I, I agree, Joan. I think it's tough. He's a, he's a California liberal. He's got a long record of being a California lefty. And I think it would be easy for Republicans to paint him as such uh, to the rest of the country. This is um, a race I want to talk about that's a little bit closer to home here. Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes. There was um, concern, even in Democratic circles, early on in this race, when there was before there was even a Democratic primary vote, that Mandela Barnes would be perceived by most of Wisconsin as too progressive. Um, I think when, you know, because there were sound bites, despite the fact that he later repudiated, there were sound bites of him saying defund the police. And and there were fears that that would, as indeed it was, be weaponized against him. Um, He was also a young black man in a in a state where not everybody would support a candidate who who looks like that. Do you think I was looking at the candidates and, you know, I. I thought Sarah Godlewski was a strong yeah. candidate. Heck, I even thought Tom Nelson, you know, he couldn't get any traction, couldn't get any fundraising. But I thought yeah. he was a good, strong candidate uh, with a 2020 hindsight. Joe, talk about that race. All I know is this, Joan, uh, the Johnson people were ecstatic when Barnes won that primary. Mm. Um, and I think it has to go to the fact that. He look, he's a good, proud, genuine leftist. He's a progressive. And Johnson and his people knew in the state of Wisconsin that would be much easier to run against. Uh, I know Johnson well, and, uh, you know, he's not beloved in Wisconsin. And it would the race, even though Mandela is who he is, the race was still close. I think a more uh, a, a more moderate Democrat would have succeeded against Johnson. You say, you know, Ron Johnson. So there's a little game I play on my show, Joe. Were they always crazy and we just didn't realize it? Or did they get crazy over time? You know, we play that game a lot with people like Mike Flynn and Ron Johnson. So, you know, the man, is he who he's always been or has he changed? So I must be a lousy judge of character because Johnson and I got elected together, Joan, and I really liked him. He seemed like a normal, fun, non-politician businessman. When I look back at all the Republicans who have sold their soul to Trump 10 years ago, Joan, I wouldn't have told you. Ron Johnson wouldn't have done that. So either I'm a lousy judge of character or or he really did change. Like, And I'll give you one other name, Jim Jordan. In the House, Jim Jordan and I were best friends. Jim Jordan's always been who he is. Mm. So, well, we don't usually play the game with him because for that reason, he does seem to have always been, (laughs) shall we say, who he is. Um, But for I remember reading about Charlie Sykes and who Charlie was like, you know, I thought he would be great. I supported him. I promoted his candidacy on my radio show. And now I just it's like I don't know what happened. What happened? What happened to him, Joe? How did he change from that guy you knew? And I've had this conversation with Charlie because he and I feel the same way. Like, what happened to him? It's not who we knew 10 years ago. But there must have been part of this in him. 
for him to buy into some of the Putin stuff and the Russian stuff and the stolen election stuff and conspiracy stuff. And Ron Johnson's a successful businessman for him to get down on his knees and worship Trump. uh, He must have had this tendency in him. I, I know this about him. He doesn't love the job of being a United States senator. So it's not like he loves the job and he sold out for the job. He must believe some of this crap. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. No, yeah, you know, it. I'm glad to get your insight because I'm just somebody looking at it from the outside, trying to make sense of it. Um, yeah. Joe, um, any, uh, oh, let's, uh, the runoff in Georgia, any predictions? I think Warnock wins, but I think it's going to be really close and it's going to come down to that because I think it looks like the Republican candidate might win the Senate race in Nevada. I'm hoping Mark Kelly can hang on in Arizona, mm-hmm. which means it would come down to Georgia. And I think Warnock will win. Let's, let's hope. Let's hope you are absolutely correct. Joe, I love hey, talking I, to can you. Can I end this by sure. just can I end this by just saying what I was gonna say at the beginning? I mean it. I'm a big fan of yours. I love what you do and I love the radio you you do. So there, I got it in. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, we we talked on the radio a long time ago and I had a great time. I and I a few months later reached out to you and I never heard anything back and I thought, "Oh, Oh, oh now God. Joe Walsh, he's too big. He's doing cable shows no, no, no. now. Now he doesn't want to be on the radio with me. Joe Walsh would like to be on Joan Esposito's show every week. I should have a, a regular segment with you. <laughs> it is our Friday Joe Walsh segment. I like that idea. Be careful what you wish for, Mr. Walsh. Thank you, Joe. And I will be reaching out again. So would you look at your messages? I will. You're the best. Thank Thank you. you, All right. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more. President Biden is supposed to be speaking about the election at any moment. We are going to try to bring you that live as soon as it happens. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. After our day got started today, President Biden announced that he wanted to come out and talk about the midterm elections. We are waiting for that to happen, and we will jump if it does. But previously, I had asked Matt Cohen, who's an investigative reporter at the American Independent, to join us at this time. So, Matt, I appreciate uh, the fact that you're here and that you're willing to be flexible for the for the president. Um, by the way, Matt is a reporter who specializes in extremism and politics so uh, Matt has a lot on his plate right now. Matt, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks, John. I'm glad to be here. And uh, if I get bumped by the president, you know, it, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, it happens to us all. So what is you? what are your thoughts about uh, the midterm election last night? Uh, last I heard, 
There were 299 people who were election deniers on various ballots. Uh, I know not all of them won, but a lot of them did win. How do you feel about what you saw in this midterm? Yeah, um, you know, I think overall it was somewhat of a referendum uh, uh, against extremism and a a message that, uh, you know, people still believe in democracy. Um, Sure, a a, a lot weren't. Um, A lot, uh, I'd say, a lot more than um, people kind of thought weren't elected. Um, And that really sends a a, a powerful message, I think. you know, especially uh, the candidates who were endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Um, that was a clear referendum um, of his influence on the on the GOP. And I think, you know, uh, in the next few days, weeks, even months, you know, all of us will still be going through um, all the data to see kind of what lessons uh, we could take away from this election. But, you know, overall, it was a wasn't surprised, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, you you just pointed out that a number of Trump candidates did not win in this midterm election. The guy has a pretty solid view of himself. Do you think mm-hmm. the, his candidates losing will? Would you think he's saying to himself, "Man, you know, maybe I I better not announce for president right away, or maybe I better not announce at all"? Is it having any effect on the Donald Trump you've known and watched? I don't think so. I, I mean, I think, you know, despite uh, the the kind of loss that uh, he and, and his kind of wing of the party suffered last night, um, it is clear, especially from the primaries, that that is still a hugely influential um, uh, uh, wing of the party. And, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm sure people in, in, in the Trump camp are kind of looking at um, what they may have done wrong and how to refocus, but I don't think they're going away anytime soon. And I, and I think it's still a, a pretty big threat that we, you know, really need to uh, keep looking at and, and hold accountable. Um, you know, just because a lot of election deniers and extremists uh, didn't uh, make it into office doesn't mean they're going to stop trying in, in subsequent elections. And that's a, um, that is, that is a you know something that I and a lot of other journalists uh, won't stop reporting on. Well, speaking of extremists, we still do have a number of them in Congress, and by all accounts today, even though Kevin McCarthy is not officially the Speaker of the House, it is officially still up for grabs. He is supposedly making a lot of phone calls and trying to garner support. A lot of people believe that the more extreme members of Congress will really be setting the agenda and that McCarthy will end up being just some kind of sock puppet for them. What do you think? Yeah, I, um, you know, it, 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 it's still early. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're waiting to see what exactly the House is going to look like. But even with a Republican majority uh, and, and McCarthy leading that contingent, um, it, it Two points. It's a. It's not looking like as big of a uh, kind of um, gap as as a lot of people were anticipating. Uh, and, and b. Even having a, a slight majority doesn't automatically uh, set the agenda. Um, you know, it 
certainly going to make life harder for Democrats. Uh, but I don't think that uh, even having like, you know, a majority by a, a few seats automatically means, you know, McCarthy is going to implement this extremism, uh, just just far right agenda into the House. I think it's going to be really uh, it's going to be an interesting time to follow the House for sure. And I think there are going to be a lot of fights. I think you might see some more moderate Republicans maybe uh, buck against the, that extremist wing of the party. Um, there's going to be a lot of infighting, I'm sure, especially after what happened with this election. And I, you know, I, I think that's going to be a big narrative uh, in, over the next two years. We know um, there's been all this talk you know, Republicans saying, oh, if we take the House, we're going to impeach Joe Biden. We don't know what for, but we're going to impeach him. We're going to impeach Kalama. We're going to impeach everybody. Um, there are they may be quiet, but there are moderate Republicans. There are certainly loud, extreme Republicans. Isn't Kevin McCarthy going to be herding cats here? <laughs> um, you know, that. That remains to be seen. Uh, you know, just despite uh, former President Donald Trump being impeached twice, it is not an easy process. And, it, and you know, as much as the Republicans love to say we're going to impeach, impeach Joe Biden, we're going to do this and that, uh, the truth is that, you know, it, it's not as easy as that. And, and you know, I, I think that um, despite what McCarthy says and, and what people think, that it's going to be – uh, it's going to be a turbulent time for the GOP, even in when they're in power. Yeah, uh, I think so, too. And if it looks like we hang on to the Senate, I think that's um, that's going to make um, it's going to make things even more interesting moving forward. Matt, as you you, you talked about how. Um, there was no, you know, we kept being told over and over again. I never thought it was true, but red wave, there's going to be a red wave. I actually had one of my listeners uh, sent me an email a few days ago and said, you're so stupid, they should pull you off the air. Don't you know there's going to be a red wave? <laughs> and I responded, I said, okay, but what if there's not? Then, like, what do I get? Do I get, like, an award, you know? Do I get a gold star? Um, you know, we were being told that over and over again, and that is not what happened, whether it was the turnout of the youth vote, which seems to be much higher than expected, whether it was women who were still simmering over abortion um, and were being discounted. I don't know. But we had a wonderful we put up a good fight in an election that we were supposed to get creamed. And it is still the day after Election Day. And I cannot officially call either the House or the Senate. And I think people did a lot of good work and we accomplished a lot. Other than the turnout and the fact that, you know, this red wave was um, refuted, what is your other big takeaway from the midterms? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you nailed it right there. Um, look, uh, the first midterm after a, uh, a president's kind of first election is usually goes to the opposite party. Um, and the fact that this is so close and we still can't really say for sure what it's going to look like really, uh, I think, sends a, a pretty strong message about, um, you know, how the Biden administration is handling a lot of things. Uh, I think politics is very fluid, uh, especially among voters. And to try to predict stuff one week, tides turn extremely fast. So. 
mm-hmm. you know, I think this was uh, a, a, a really surprising uh, and impressive message about how the Democrats are uh, are, are doing with with full control of um, the presidency and the Congress. Um, Matt Cohen is an investigative reporter at the American Independent. Uh, He and I are going to take a break and we might be back after this or you might be hearing President Biden. Any it's anybody's guess at this point. We're going to take a break and we might see in a couple of minutes. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. President Biden is walking out right now. He's going to be talking about the midterm elections. Let's go to him live. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm a little hoarse. Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but uh, with their votes, uh, the American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. The states across the country uh, saw record voter turnout and the heart and soul of our democracy, the voters, the poll workers, the election officials, uh, they uh, did their job uh, and they fulfilled their duty. And apparently without much uh, interference at all, without any interference, it looks like. And that's a testament, I think, to the American people. While we don't know all the results yet, at least I don't know them all yet, uh, here's what we do know. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. And I know you were somewhat miffed by my my, uh, obsessive optimism, but uh, I felt good during the whole process. I thought we were going to do fine. While any seat lost is painful, some good Democrats didn't win the last night. Democrats had a strong night. And we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. And we had the best midterm for governors since 1986. And another thing that we know is that voters uh, spoke clearly about their concerns, about raising costs, the rising costs that they're in, and the need to get inflation down. There's still a lot of people hurting. They're very concerned. And it's about crime and public safety. And they sent a clear and unmistakable message that they want to uh, preserve our democracy and protect the right to choose uh, in this country. And I especially want to thank the young people of this nation, who I'm told, I haven't seen the numbers, uh, voted historic numbers again. And uh, just as they did two years ago. And they voted to continue addressing the climate crisis, gun violence, their personal rights and freedoms, and the student debt relief. Last night, I was pleased to call Maxwell Frost, a 25-year-old who got elected, I guess the youngest man ever elected to the United States Congress. And uh, I told him uh, uh, that uh, he, I, I told him that I was the first elected, the second youngest person ever elected to the United States Senate at 29. That I have no doubt he's off to an incredible start and what I'm sure will be a long, distinguished career. And when he's president and they say Joe Biden's out in the outer office, I don't want to say Joe who. Um, But the voters were also clear that they are still frustrated. I get it. I understand it's been a really tough few years in this country for so many people. When I came to office, we inherited a nation with a pandemic uh, raging and an economy that was reeling. And we acted quickly and boldly to vaccinate the country and to create a stable and sustained growth in our economy. 
long-term investment to rebuild America itself, our roads, our bridges, our ports, our airports, clean water systems, high-speed Internet. And we're just getting started. The interesting thing is that this is all going to really come into clear view for people in the months, in the months of January, February, March of next year. It's just getting underway. So I'm optimistic about how the public is going to even be more embraceable of what we've done. Historic investments that are leading companies to invest literally hundreds of billions of dollars combined to build semiconductor factories and other advanced manufacturing here in America. It's going to create tens of thousands of good-paying jobs. And by the way, a significant number of those jobs are going to be jobs that pay uh, average $126,000, $127,000. You don't need a college degree to get those jobs. And we're dealing with global inflation as a result of the pandemic and Putin's war in Ukraine. We're also handling it better than most other advanced nations in the world. We're lowering gas prices. We're looking, we're taking on powerful interest, uh, lower prescription drug costs and health insurance premiums and energy bills. After 20 months of hard work, the pandemic no longer controls our lives. It's still a concern, but no longer controls our lives. Our economic policies have created a record 10 million new jobs since I came into office. Unemployment rate is down from 6.4 when I was sworn in to 3.7 percent, near a 50-year low. And we've done all this while lowering the federal deficit in the two years by $1.7 trillion. Let me say it again, $1.7 trillion. No administration has ever cut the deficit that much. And reducing the federal deficit is one of the best things we can do to lower inflation. But while we've made real progress as a nation, I know it's hard for folks to see that project, that progress in their everyday lives. And it's hard to see the results from actions that we took uh, while we we have to implement what we've done. But I believe we took the right steps for the country and for the American people. In fact, if you look at the polls... Overwhelming majority, and I don't look them much anymore because I'm not quite sure how to read them anymore. Uh, I hope you are uncertain as well. Um, but uh, overwhelming majority of American people support the elements of my economic agenda. From rebuilding Americans' roads and bridges to lowering prescription drug costs to historic investment in tack- tackling the climate crisis to making uh, sure that large corporations begin to pay their fair share in taxes. I'm confident these policies are working and that we're on the right path and we need to stick with them. All these initiatives take hold uh, as they do from lead pipes being removed from schools and homes to new factories being built in communities with a resurgence of American manufacturing. It's already created, by the way, 700,000 brand new manufacturing jobs. You've heard me say it ad nauseum. I don't know where it's written. It says we can't be the manufacturing capital of the world. We are now exporting product, not jobs, around the world, people across the country are going to see even more clearly the positive effects on their day-to-day lives. But I still understand why they're hurting right now. So many people are concerned. As I have throughout my career, I'm going to continue to work across the aisle to deliver for the American people. And it's not always easy, but we did it the first term. I'll be surprised a lot of people that we signed over 210 bipartisan laws since I've become president, and we're revitalizing American manufacturing, gun safety, we did it together, and dozens of laws positively impacting on our veterans. And let me say this, regardless regardless of what the final tally in these elections show, and there's still some counting going on, I'm prepared to work with my Republican colleagues. 
The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. In the area of foreign policy, I hope we'll continue this bipartisan approach of confronting Russia's aggression in Ukraine. When I return from the G20 meetings in Indonesia with other world leaders, I'm going to invite the leaders of both political parties, as I've done in the past in my foreign trips, to the White House to discuss how we can work together for the remainder of this year and into the next Congress to advance the economic and national security priorities of the United States. And I'm open to any good ideas. I want to be very clear. I'm not going to support any Republican proposal that's going to make inflation worse. For example, the voters don't want to pay higher prescription costs for drugs. We've cut that now. We're going to kick into gear next year, next calendar year. And I'm not going to walk away from the historic commitments we just made to take on the climate crisis. They're not compromisable issues to me. And I won't let it happen. The voters don't want more taxes for the super uh, tax cuts for the super wealthy and biggest corporations. And I'm going to continue to focus on cost cutting for working and middle class families and building an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. I know you're tired of hearing me say that, but I genuinely mean it. That's what makes America grow. The wealthy do very well when the middle class is doing well and the poor have a way up and while continue to bring down the federal deficit. You know, as we look at tax cuts, we should be looking at tax cuts for working people and middle-class people, not the very wealthy. They're fine. And I, look, I, if you can go out and be a multimillionaire, that's great. Just, just pay your fair share. That's all. That's all. Just pay your fair share. It's like those 55 corporations in 2000 that made $40 billion and didn't pay a penny in federal taxes. It's not right. Everybody has an obligation. So now they have to pay a staggering 15 percent. You all pay more than that for new taxes. So I'm going to keep my commitment <clears throat> that no one, no one earning less than $400,000 a year, and that's a lot of money where I come from, are going to see their federal taxes go up. And I want to be very clear. Under no circumstances will I support the proposal put forward by Senators Johnson and the senator from down in Florida to cut or make fundamental changes in Social Security and Medicare. That's not on the table. I will not do that. I will veto any attempt to pass a national ban on abortion. But I'm ready to compromise with Republicans where it makes sense on many other issues. And I'll always put the needs and interests of the American people first. So let me close with this. On this election season, the American people made it clear they don't want every day going forward to be a constant political battle. There's too much that of that going on. There's too much that we have to do. The future of America is too promising, too promising to be trapped in an endless political warfare. And I really mean it. You've heard me say it time and again for the last 20 months or so. I am so optimistic about the prospects for America. We need to be looking to the future, not fixated on the past. And that future is bright as can be. We were the only nation in the world that's come out of every crisis stronger than we went into the crisis. And that's a fact. I mean, I mean, literally mean that. We've come out stronger than we've gone in. And I've never been more optimistic about America's future than I am today. You know, I, particularly because of all those young people I talked about, 18 to 30. They're showing up. They're the best educated generation in American history. They're the least prejudiced generation in American history. The most engaged generation in American history. And they're most involved. Look. After a long campaign season, I still believe it always have. 
This is a great nation and we're a great people. And it's never been a good bet to bet against America. Never been a good bet to bet against America. There's nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we work together. We just need to remember who the hell we are. We're the United States of America. The United States of America. There's nothing beyond our capacity. And I'm pretty well convinced that we're going to be able to get a lot done. Now, I've been given a list of 10 people that I'm supposed to call on. And you're all supposed to ask me one question, but I'm sure you'll ask me more. And uh, so let me start off with a list I've been given. Um, uh, Zeke Miller, Associated Press. Thank you, Mr. President. I have two questions for you. As you mentioned, uh, as you mentioned, uh, how come we never hold you guys the same standard you hold us to? But anyway, go ahead. Fulfilled I'm, I'm, te- I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, Americans are frustrated, and in fact, 75 percent of voters say the country is heading into the wrong direction, despite the results of last night. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run? for president in 2024? Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. Do you know anybody who wants us to get rid of the change we made on prescription drug prices and raise prices again? Do you know anybody who wants us to walk away from building those roads and bridges and, and the Internet and so on? I don't, I, I don't know. Any, I think that the problem is the major piece of legislation we passed, and some of it bipartisan, takes time to be recognized. For example, you got, you got over a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure money, but not that many spades have been put in the ground. It's taking time. For example, I was on the phone congratulating a Californian recently, and then someone in, uh, uh, up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the congressman who got elected, he said, can you help us make sure we're able to have high-speed rail, ser- rail service from Scranton to New York? New York City. I said, yeah, we can. We can. First of all, it'll make it a lot easier, take a lot of vehicles off the road. And we have more money in the, in the pot now, already, already out there, we voted for, than the entire money we spent on Amtrak to begin with. And it's the same way. For example, I talked about through the campaign that we're going to limit the cost of insulin for seniors to, to uh, $35 a month instead of 400 a month. Well, it doesn't take effect till next year. So there's a lot of things that are just starting to kick in. And the same way with what we've done in terms of the environmental stuff. It takes time to get it moving. So I'm not going to change. As a matter of fact, you know, there's some things I want to change and add to. For example, we had passed the most bipartisan. We passed the most extensive gun legislation, anti, you know, rational gun policy in 30 years. And but we didn't ban assault weapons. I'm going to ban assault weapons. They're going to try like the devil. So I'm not going to change the direction. I said I ran for three reasons. I'm going to continue to stay where I am. And I know I fully understand the legitimate concern that what I'm saying is wrong. OK. One is that I said we're going to restore the soul of the country, begin to treat each other with decency, honor and integrity. And it's starting to happen. People are, the, 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 the conversations are becoming more normal, becoming more, more, how can I say it, uh, um, decent. Second thing I said was I want to build a country from the middle out, the bottom up, and that way everybody does fine. I'm tired of trickle down. Not a whole lot trickles down when you trickle down to hardworking folks. And the third thing I know is still very hard. I'm going to do everything in my power 
to see to the reunite the country. It's hard to sustain yourself as a leading democracy in the world if you can't, ge- ge- can't generate some unity. So I'm not going to change anything in any fundamental way. Just on a different topic, Mr. President, uh, Russia today claimed that it had uh, evacuated uh, the, uh, the Kherson region and the Kherson city. Do you believe that this is potentially an inflection point um, in that conflict? And do you believe that Ukraine now has the leverage it needs to begin peace negotiations with Moscow? Uh, first of all, I found it interesting they waited till after the election to make that judgment, and, uh, which we knew for some time that they were going to be doing. And it's evidence of the fact that they have some real problems, Russian, the Russian military, um, number one. Number two, whether or not that leads to, at a minimum, it will lead to uh, time for everyone to re- recalibrate their positions over the winter period. And it remains to be seen whether or not there will be a judgment made um, as to uh, um, whether or not Ukraine is prepared to uh, compromise with Russia. I'm going to be going to the G20. I'm told that President Putin is not likely to be there, but other world leaders are going to be there in Indonesia. And we're going to have an opportunity to see uh, what uh, what the next steps may be. Um, Nancy, CBS, Nancy Cordes. Thank you, Mr. President. I have a few questions. Been saving them up. Uh, First of all, uh, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy said last night that it is clear we are going to take the House back. Do you think he's probably right about that? Well, based on what we know as as of today, we've uh, we've lost very few seats for certain. Uh, We still have a possibility of uh, of keeping the House, but it's going to be close. And for example, in uh, in, in Nevada, we won all three of those seats, contested seats. I went out for each, and I spoke with each for each of those folks, but um, we won them all. I didn't know that last night, so it's, it's a moving target right now. But it's going to be very close. Can you can you describe your relationship with Mr. McCarthy? How often do you speak to him? What do you think of him? I think he's a Republican leader, and uh, I haven't had much of occasion to talk to him. But I will be talking to him. I think I think I'm talking to him later today. When it comes to your legislative agenda, when you were vice president, your legislative agenda basically ran into a brick wall two years in when Republicans took control of the House, and that lasted for the rest of the Obama presidency. Is there any way for you to prevent that same fate from happening this time around? Yes. If Republicans take control of the House. Yes, uh, because it's going to be much closer if they take control. Look... The predictions were, and again, I'm not being critical of anybody who made the predictions. I got it, okay? This is supposed to be a red wave. You guys, you were talking about us losing 30 to 50 seats, and this is going to... No, that's not going to happen. And so there's always enough people in the on the other team, whether it's Democrat or Republican, that the opposite party can make an appeal to and maybe pick them off to get the help. And uh, And so it remains to be seen. But look... I, I doubt whether or not, uh, for example, all the talk, uh, I'd ask the rhetorical, I don't expect you to answer, but the rhetorical question, um, do you think that, uh, um, you know, uh, Senator Johnson is going to move to cut Medicare and Social Security? And if he does, how many Republicans are going to vote for it? So it depends. And then my 
my <laughs> final question. <laughs> um, Republicans have made it clear that if they do take control of the House, that they want to launch a raft of investigations on day one into your handling of Afghanistan, the border. Uh, they want to look into some of your cabinet officials. They want to investigate you. They may even want to investigate your son. What's your message to Republicans who are considering investigating your family and particularly your son Hunter's business dealings? Lots of luck in your senior year, as my coach used to say. Look, um, I think the American public wants to move on and get things done for them. And, uh, you know, I heard that there were, uh, it was reported, whether it's accurate or not, I'm not sure, but it was reported many times that Republicans were saying, and the former president said, how many times are you going to impeach Biden? You know, impeachment proceeding against Biden. I mean, I think, the re- I think the American people will look at all of that for what it is. It's just uh, almost comedy. I mean, it's, uh, but, you know, look, I can't control what they're going to do. All I can do is continue to try to make life better for the American people. Okay, Phil, Phil Mattingly, CNN. Thank you, Mr. President. I have 37 quick. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, sir, at a fundraiser last month, you said, quote, the rest of the world is looking at this election, both the good guys and the bad guys. You noted you're going to the G20 in a couple of days. You'll come face to face with many of those leaders the same moment that your predecessor is considering launching his reelection effort. How should those world leaders, both good guys and bad guys, view this moment both for America and for your presidency? Well, first of all, these world leaders know we're doing better than anybody else in the world as a practical matter. Notwithstanding the difficulties we have, our economy is growing. You saw the last report. We're still growing at 2.6 percent. We're creating jobs. We're still in a solid position. And there's not many other countries in the world are in that position. And I promise you, from the telephone calls I still have and from the meetings I have with other heads of state, they're looking to the United States and saying, how are you doing? What are you doing? What can we do together? How do so I think that the vast majority of my colleagues, at least those colleagues who are NATO members, European Union, Japan, South Korea, et cetera, I think they're looking to cooperate and wanting to know how, how we can help one another. Um, and what was that question? Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. So I think the one way I would follow up on that is you, you noted that you felt like there was a shift in terms of uh, people being willing to show more decency in this moment. You've often talked about breaking the fever or kind of a transition from this moment that we've faced over the last several years. Do you feel like the election is what represents that? Do you feel like the fever is broken, I guess? Well, I, I'm not, I, I don't think we're going to break the fever for the super mega mega Republicans. I mean, but I think they're a minority of the Republican Party. I think the vast majority of the members of the Republican Party, we disagree strongly on issues, but they're decent, honorable people. We have differences of agreement on on issues. But they, uh, you know, I, I, I work with a lot of these folks in the Senate and the House for a long time. And, uh, you know, they they're they're honest and they're and they're straightforward. They're different than mine, but they're you know, they're they're, they're decent folks. And so. I think that the rest of the world, and a lot of you have covered other parts of the world, and you know, the rest of the world look at the United States. I guess the best way to say this is to is to repeat what you've some of you heard me say before. The first um, 
G7 meeting for the public. That's the the seven largest democracies. When I went to uh, right after we got elected in February, after I got sworn in in January, and I sat down at a table, round table, with the six other world leaders from the European Union and United, and, uh, and Canada, etc., and said, uh, "America's back." And one of them turned to me and said, "For how long?" For how long? It was a deadly earnest question. For how long? And I looked at them, and then another one went on to say, and I'm not going to name them, went on to say, what would you say, Joe, if in fact you went, we went to bed tonight here in, in England, woke up the next morning and found out that thousands of people had stormed the Parliament of, of Great Britain, gone down the hall, broken down the doors, two cops ended up dying, a number of people injured, and they tried to stop the, the confirmation of an election. It's not the same situation, obviously, as we have. And he said, what would you think? And what, I asked a rhetorical question, what would you all think? You'd think England was really in trouble. You'd think democracy was on the edge if that happened in Great Britain. And so that's the way people were looking at us. Like, when's this going to stop? Nothing like this has happened since the Civil War. I don't want to exaggerate, but literally, nothing like this has happened since the Civil War. And so what I find is that they want to know, is the United States stable? Do we know what we're about? Are we the same democracy we've always been? Because, look, the rest of the world looks to us. I don't mean that we're always like we're always right. But if the United States tomorrow were to, quote, withdraw from the world, a lot of things would change around the world. A whole lot would change. And so they're very concerned that we are still the open democracy we've been and that we have rules and the institutions matter. And that's the context in which I think that they're looking at. Are we back to a place where we are going to accept decisions made by the court, by the Congress, by the government, etc. So the entire genesis of that G7 conversation was tied to your predecessor, who is about to launch another campaign. So how do you reassure them if that is the reason for their questioning, that the former president will not return, that his political movement, which is still very strong, uh, will not oh, yeah? once again take power in the United <laughs> States? Well, um, we just have to demonstrate that he will not take power um, by uh, if we uh, if he does run, uh, making sure he, uh, under legitimate efforts of uh, our constitution, does not become the next president again. Um, Steve Reuters, I'm sorry, Steve Holland. Thank you, sir. Uh, how do you t interpret last night's results in terms of deciding whether you want to seek another term? Does, is it now more likely that you will run? And what's going to be your timeline for consideration? Well, first of all, Jill and I have, and by the way, it's my wife, Jill, um, uh, um, who's held a lot more popular than I am in the Democratic Party, too. But at any rate, um, all kidding aside, uh, our, our intention is to run again. That's been our intention, regardless of what the outcome of this election was. Um, and uh, the fact that we won 
We, I didn't run. The fact that the Democratic Party outperformed anything anyone expected and did better than any uh, off-year presidency since John Kennedy is one that gives everybody like, whew, sigh of relief that the mega Republicans are not taking over the government again, et cetera. And uh, so uh, my judgment of running when I announce, if I announce, my intention is that I run again, but I'm a great respecter of fate, and uh, this is ultimately a family decision. I think everybody wants me to run, but they're going, we're going to have discussions about it. And I don't feel in any, any hurry one way or another what, to, to, to make that judgment what, today, tomorrow, whenever, no, no matter what the, 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 my predecessor does. Next year, or what's your your thinking? My guess is, I hope Jill and I get a little time to actually sneak away for a week around between Christmas and Thanksgiving. (laughs) And my guess is it'd be early next year we make that judgment. But it is my plan to do it now. I mean, but, you know. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Karen, Karen uh, Travers of ABC Radio. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Uh, WNBA star Brittany Griner today was moved to a Russian penal colony to serve out her nine-year sentence. Do you have an update right now on her condition? What do you know about that? And does this mark a new phase in negotiations with the Russians to secure her release? Can the U.S. now fully engage in talks on a prisoner swap? Well, a, we've, a been, up, we've been engaging uh, on a regular basis. I've been, I've been spending a fair amount of time with, with her wife, uh, about what's going on with uh, her. And um, my guess is, my hope is, that now that the election is over, that uh, Mr. Putin will be able to discuss with us and be willing to talk more seriously about prisoner exchange. That is my intention. My intention is to get her home. And uh, we've had a number of discussions so far. And uh, I'm hopeful that now that our election is over, there's a willingness to... uh, to negotiate more specifically with us. Thank you. And if I can, um, your press secretary had said that the U.S. government has continued to follow up on that significant offer, but also had proposed alternative potential ways forward with the Russians. Can you tell us what those alternative ways forward are and how Russia has responded to those? Yes, I can, but I won't. Okay, I can't. I mean, you know, it, it, would, it would not be a wise thing to do in order to see if they would move forward. But it is my, I'm telling you, I am determined to get her home and get her home safely, along with others, I might add. Um, April Ryan. Of the Griot. Of the Griot. Excuse me, I beg your pardon. (laughs) Thank you, sir. I got it right last time we did this. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Uh, Mr. President, I have a couple of questions on several issues. One, the Supreme Court. As you know, the Supreme Court has before it uh, the issue of college admissions and affirmative action. What can and are you planning in case of a rollback that is expected? There are legal analysts that say that there will be drastic implications. There are tentacles from this, and they even say that this could impact Brown v. Board, the decision from Brown v. Board. Well, you know, first of all, I asked our Justice Department to defend the present policy before the Supreme Court. 
And like a lot of pundits, I'm not prepared to believe that the Supreme Court is going to overrule the, pre- the existing decision. That's far from certain, and I don't, I don't believe that. But number one, so number one, what I did to try to change it is object to it before the Supreme Court of the United States, our administration. Number two, um, I, uh, there are a number of things that we can and must do to make it. And by the way, this is a case involving uh, an Asian American uh, in terms of getting into uh, school and uh, whether there's affirmative action makes sense at all from the standpoint of those who are arguing against it. Um, but, you know, the fact is that we're, we're also in a circumstance where there's a lot that we can do in the meantime to make sure that there's an access to good education across the board, and that is by doing things that relate to starting education at age three, formal schooling at age three, which increases not daycare but school. All the studies over 10 years show that that increases the prospect of someone making it through 12 years without any difficulty, no matter what the background they come from, by 56 percent. And I also think that we should be making sure that we have the ability to uh, provide for two years of education beyond that, whether it's apprenticeships or community colleges. And we also are in a situation where I think that, for example, I want to make sure we a lot of it has to do with finances as well, that we make sure that we have help for people who come from modest means to be able to get to school. You know, the cost of college education has increased fourfold. And it used to be that a Pell Grant would cover something like 70% of the college tuition. Now it covers significantly less than that. So I want to increase the Pell Grants as well. But let's see what the Supreme Court decides. And I'm, I am hopeful, and uh, our team and our, the lawyers that argued for us are not nearly as certain as the people you quoted as saying it's going to be overruled. The issue um, is inflation. The Griot and KFF conducted a study of black voters that said inflation was the number one issue, and we saw it in this midterm election. What can you promise concretely in these next two years that will help turn the pocketbook for the better uh, in the midst of staving off a recession? Well, a number of things. First of all, Black unemployment is almost cut in half under my administration just since I began. More black businesses have opened up, small businesses, than ever before. We're now in a situation where we're providing, through the Small Business Administration, down payments for people buying homes because most people accumulate wealth in the value of their home. Most middle-class families are like mine. My dad bought a home, didn't have it, just scraped together to get home by the time he uh, was able to retire. He, was, uh, he had built up equity in the home. That's how most people do that. Um, and so, um, but what I can't do is I can't guarantee that um, we're going to be able to uh, get rid of inflation, but I do think we can. We've, brought, we've already brought down the price of gasoline, about $1.20 a gallon across the board. And I think that the... the, the uh, The oil companies are really doing the nation a real disservice. They've made, six of them made over $100 billion in the last quarter in profit. $100 billion. In the past, if they had done the two things they have done before, one 
invest in more refineries and producing more product and or passing on the rebates to the gas stations or, you know, they sell the oil at a cheaper rate than they have to, than they are selling it now, not taking advantage. And that lowers the price of the total gallon of gas because that gets passed on. So there, there's a whole lot of things that we can do. Uh, that are that are difficult to do, but we're going to continue to push to do them. And uh, the other thing is that one of the things that makes a gigantic difference is what are the costs that exist in the average family and, and average black community? One, prescription drug costs. Well, we're driving those down precipitously beginning next year. And, you know, I'll bet you know a lot of people in the African-American and, and, and Caucasian community that, that need to take insulin for diabetes. Well, we're going to reduce that cost. They're not going to pay more than $35 for the insulin instead of four, average of $400. And I can go down the list of the things that my dad used to say it a different way. At the end of the month, the things you have to pay for. From your mortgage to food on the table to gasoline in the automobile, do you have enough money to do it? And when it's done, do you have anything left over? And medical bills are a big piece of that, particularly in the African-American community and, the poor, and poorer communities. They need help. And so we're driving down all of those costs. And we've already passed the legislation to do that. It's just taking effect. So there's a lot of things we can do to affect the things that people need on a monthly basis to reduce their inflation, their cost of living. And, and so but I am optimistic because we continue to grow and at a rational pace. We are not anywhere near a recession right now in terms of the growth. But I think we can have what the most economists call a soft landing. I'm convinced that we're going to be able to gradually bring down prices so that they, in fact, end up with us not having to move into a recession to be able to get control of inflation. And, Mr. President, last question on humanity. Everybody else got some. Um, last well, you're coming. Okay, go ahead. Um, last question um, on humanity. Sir, you can't legislate and you can't executive order out the issue of empathy or the lack thereof in the midst of this rhetoric, this heated political rhetoric. What's next? Part of what I think leadership requires, and I hope I meet the standard, is letting people know you understand their problem. Again, my dad used to have an expression. He said, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I expect them to at least know what they are, understand them. And um, like a lot of you, we've been very fortunate as a family, but we've also been through a lot of fairly tough times. And it's not, and I've had the great advantage of having a family to get through them. When my first wife and daughter were killed when a tractor trailer broadsided them and killed my wife and killed my, my first wife and killed my daughter. And my two boys are expected to die. They were in a, it took the jaws of life three hours to get them out there on top of their dead mother and dead sister. I understand what that pain is like. And when Jill and I lost Bo after a year in Iraq, winning the Bronze Star of Conspicuous Service Medal, a major in the United States military, came home with stage four glioblastoma because he lived about 205, to between two and 500 yards from a burn pit that's 10 feet deep and as big as a football field, burning every toxic waste you could find. 
you know, I think that we uh, we understand what it's like to lose family members, uh, mothers, fathers. They can't. We all of you went through that kind of thing. We've been fortunate, though. We've had each other. We've had strong families, Jill's sisters, my brothers, my sister. And so what we can do to deal with that empathy is make sure there's help available. Make sure there's people who are there to help, whether they are psychologists or whether they're medical doctors or whether they're social workers. To be there to help. To help just hold a hand. And for example, we can do an awful lot for a lot of families. The families you're talking about, if we reinstate this child tax credit, it cut child poverty by 40%. When it was in place, I couldn't get it passed the second time around. So there's a lot we can do. And the empathy is not just talking about it, it's communicating to people you genuinely understand. And I hope a lot of people don't understand because they, I, I don't want people having to know the pain. But the second piece of that is let them know that you are there to help. You're there to help. And one of the things I've talked with Vivek Murthy about, and a lot of you have written about it, and you've written well about it, is the need for mental health care in America. You know, when we got elected, there were something like, I don't know, two, three, five million people who gotten their, their, their COVID shots. Well, in the meantime, I, I got over 220 million people, all three shots. But in the meantime, what happened? We lost over a million dead. A million dead. I read one study that for those million people, they had nine people who were each one had averaged nine people close to them. A relative, someone they're married to, a child, someone close. The impact has been profound. Been profound. Think of all the people. Think of all your children and your grandchildren who didn't have that senior prom who didn't have that graduation party, who didn't have all the things we had that we took for granted, that impact on their psyche. So there's a lot we have to do. And empathy reflects itself not just in what a person demonstrates to understand, of knowing what people need and helping to make it happen. And we're trying to do that. And a lot of Republicans trying to do it too. I don't mean this is a partisan thing. A lot of people are trying to do it because they know we've got a problem. Um, okay, excuse me. These ten questions are really going quickly. <laughs> well, I've got to meet with some of my, um, talk to some of the Republican leadership soon. But anyway, um, Jenny Leonard, Bloomberg. Thank you, Mr. President. Two questions. Uh, one, shifting back to your uh, trip to, the, uh, to Asia. When you meet with President Xi Jinping of China, will you tell him that you're committed to defending Taiwan militarily? And what are you hoping to get out of this meeting that will make it a success? Are you willing to make any concessions to him? Well, look, I'm not, ma- I'm not willing to make any fundamental concessions because what, I am, what I've told him in the beginning, and this is we've, I've spent over 78, I think they told me, hours with him so far, 67 in person when I was... Vice President, President Obama knew he couldn't spend time with the vice president of another country. So I traveled 17,000 miles with him in China and around in the United States. I've met with him many times. And I've told him, I'm looking for competition, not 
not uh, not conflict. And so what I want to do with him when we talk is lay out what the what kind of each of our red lines are, understand what he believes to be in the critical national interests of China, what I know to be the critical interests of the United States, and determine whether or not they conflict with one another. And if they do, how to resolve it and how to work it out. And so, and Taiwan doctrine has not changed at all from the very beginning, the very beginning. So I'm sure we'll discuss China, uh, uh, the, uh, excuse me, Taiwan, and I'm sure we'll discuss a number of other issues, including fair trade and, uh, and, re- and relationships relating to his relationship with other countries in the region. And, uh, and so anyway, so, so there's a lot we're going to have to discuss. You, you want and, another question? Yes, Everybody else got one? You didn't two say if you will uh, tell Xi Jinping personally that you are committed to defending Taiwan. I'm going to have that conversation with him. That was my second one. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I, ha- I actually have a, a, an unrelated question, too. Um, Mr. President, do you think Elon Musk is a threat to U.S. national security? And should the U.S. and with the tools you have investigate his joint acquisition of Twitter with foreign governments, which include the Saudis? <laughs> I think that Elon Musk's cooperation and or technical relationships with other countries uh, is worthy of being looked at. Whether or not he is doing anything inappropriate, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that it's worth, worth being looked at. Um, and uh, um, and uh, But that's all I'll say. There's a lot of ways. Uh, all right. Um, Kristen. Kristen Welker. Thank you so much, Mr. President. I appreciate it. I want to follow up with you on working with Republicans. Leader McCarthy again suggested that he is not prepared to write what he has called a blank check to Ukraine, and yet you expressed optimism that funding for Ukraine would continue, that the policies toward Ukraine would continue. Why should the people of Ukraine and this country have confidence in that, given the comments by Leader McCarthy? And just to follow up with you on your comments to Zeke, you said you don't need to do anything differently. If Republicans control the House, don't you need to recalibrate to some extent to try to work across the aisle with a Republican-led House? Well, let me put it this way. What I meant was I don't have to change any of the policies I've already passed. That's what they said they want to go after. And so what I have a simple proposition. I have a pen that can veto. Okay? So that's what I mean. I don't have to recalibrate whether or not I'm going to continue to, you know, fund the, uh, we're going to continue to fund the, uh, the infrastructure bill or we're going to continue to fund the environment, et cetera. We have to, I, I hope, I think there is a growing pressure on the part of the American people, expecting both parties and all elements of both parties to uh, um, 
to work out their substantive differences and not just, I'm not going to do that because it would benefit that party. Just make it, make it personal. So I, 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 and, you know, it remains to be seen what the makeup of the, of the House will be. Um, but uh, I'm hopeful that uh, Kevin and I can uh, work out a uh, modus vivendi as to how we'll proceed with one another. Will aid to Ukraine continue uninterrupted? That is my expectation. And by the way, we've not given Ukraine a blank check. There's a lot of things that Ukraine wants we didn't we didn't do. For example, I was asked very much whether we prefer we provide American aircraft to guarantee the skies over Ukraine. I said no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to get into a third world war taking on the Russian aircraft and directly engaged. But would we provide them with the, all the, the rational ability to, to defend themselves? Yes. We find those high Mars. Well, the high Mars, there's two kinds of, uh, but in the average person's parlance, rockets you can drop in those. One that goes over 600 miles and one that goes over about 160 miles. We didn't give any ones to go to 600 miles because I'm not looking for them to start bombing Russian territory. And so we want to make sure that there's a relationship that they're able to defend themselves and take on what is purely a, a uh, the ugliest aggression that's occurred since World War II on a, a massive scale on the part of Putin within Ukraine. And there's so much at stake. So I, 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 I would be surprised if... If Leader McCarthy even has a majority of his Republican colleagues who say they're not going to fund the legitimate defensive needs of Ukraine. And just a quick one. Um, obviously, a lot of attention on 2024 now that the votes have been cast in the midterms. Two thirds of Americans in exit polls say that they don't think you should run for reelection. What is your message to them, and how does that factor into your final decision about whether or not to run for reelection? It doesn't. What's your message to them? To those two thirds of Americans. Watch me. <laughs> okay, one more. Come on. Um, but very, very quickly. Um, we saw Governor Ron DeSantis with a resounding victory in Florida uh, last night. Who do you think would be the tougher competitor, Ron DeSantis or former President Trump? And how is that factoring into your decision? It'll be fun watching them take on each other. <laughs> All right. David Sanger. Thank you, Mr. President. I also have a question for you about um, China. But before I do, I just wanted to follow up on something you said earlier. When you said it remains to be seen whether the Ukraine government is prepared to compromise with Russia. Previously, you've told us the only thing for the Russians to do is get completely out of Ukraine, go back to the, the lines that existed prior to February 24. Are you suggesting with the word compromise that you think that there is room for territorial compromise now? That no, I'm not. That's up to the Ukrainians. Nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. So what kind of compromise do you have in mind? I didn't have any in mind. Uh, you have asked the question whether or not, if I recall, whether or not what would happen if, in fact, after the, this, I, I think the context is that whether or not they're pulling back from Fallujah and the, I mean, from the, the Kherson, the, the city of Kherson, and they're coming back across the river to the eastern side of the river, the Russian forces. 
And I said, what's going to happen is they're going to both lick their wounds, decide whether what they're going to do over the winter and decide whether or not they're going to compromise. That's that's what's going to happen, whether or not. I don't know what they're going to do. And but I do know one thing. We're not going to tell them what they have to do. You were asked before about uh, your meeting with President Xi. Um, At this point, the Chinese government, by the estimate of the Pentagon, is getting ready to um, bring their force of nuclear weapons up to over a thousand weapons. Significant uh, increase from what they've had for many decades. Um, you've seen the threats from uh, President Putin about the use of his nuclear weapons. Remember forces. how you all went after me when I said that was real? And, and what, what, in your view, happened? Do you think he, he backed off because of that? No, no, statement? I'm just saying. I just, I just found it interesting that uh, Biden's being a popular Biden's being extremist. Um, and, uh, and it turns out you all are writing about it now. Kind of fascinating. So my question is, do you think that they are putting together a real alliance, the Chinese and the Russians? And do you believe that uh, you need to begin speaking with President Xi about some form of arms control if he's going to get up to a level of weapons similar to what the United States and Russia have right now? No and yes. No, I don't think there's a lot of respect that... China has for Russia or for Putin. I don't think they're looking at that as a, a particular alliance. Uh, matter of fact, uh, they've been sort of keeping their distance a little bit. I do think that uh, it may remains to be seen whether Xi Jinping has decided that or backed off of his initial judgment that he wanted Ukraine, uh, excuse me, China to have the most powerful military in the world as well as uh, the largest economy. And uh, but he's a long way from both. Um, but I think it, I think talk about nuclear weapons and location, the number of them and access is important to discuss. Thank you all so very, very much. Thank you very, very much. We'll do another. We'll, we'll do another hour a little later. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ah, yes, the shouted questions as he leaves the room because he just can't ever answer enough of them. President Biden started off this uh, press conference talking about the midterm elections, and um, well, it certainly wasn't. Every race that brought a smile to a Democrat's heart, uh, he acknowledged the obvious. Everything that we've been talking about today, we did a whole lot better than anybody expected us to do. And um, it was interesting. He's looking out over the crowd and he's looking at a lot of the reporters who had been predicting, oh, red wave, red wave. It's all going down the tubes. And, you know, it did not. Um, a control of the House and the Senate is yet to be decided. Control of the Senate may may rest on a runoff election that happens in about four weeks, where Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker are going to go head to head because neither was able to get 50 percent of the vote in Georgia. We still have a Senate race in Arizona and a Senate race in Nevada that are yet to be called. And even though Kevin McCarthy is... Um, talking like he's already Speaker of the House. 
Um, President Biden was asked about that. Hey, do you think you're going to lose the House of Representatives? And he said, you know what? That's coming down to the wire. It hasn't been decided yet. And, you know, I'm not going to say anything until it is. He did mention, though, that he has plans later today to speak with Kevin McCarthy, somebody who he said he really hasn't talked to a lot over the first uh, couple of years of his administration. The questions that uh, President Biden got were all over the map. Uh, He was asked about Brittany Griner. The news on her is that uh, Russian officials plan to move her to a labor camp. She's not going to be held in prison anymore. She's going to be moved to some kind of labor camp. Uh, President Biden said that he believes, well, this is my interpretation of what he said. I'm not quoting him exactly here. He said that he thinks that Vladimir Putin was waiting for the midterm elections to be over and that now that they are over and Democrats have done far better than anybody expected, he thinks Vladimir Putin might be ready to talk about the release of Brittany Griner and other Americans in some kind of prisoner swap. Um, he also talked about Mega Magas, the uh, diehard, uh, which I think is a great phrase, Mega Maga. I like that. I think I'm going to start using that going forward, though I also like calling them Magites. Um, he was talking about those and how, um, despite that kind of hardcore cult fanaticism, Democrats did really well. Democrats did better than anybody expected, except, of course, for the people who were out there actually doing the work and knocking on the doors. Uh, people like that have been hopeful this whole time. Um, I'm going to uh, go over a little bit more about what President Biden uh, shared with us, um, but we, um, as you might imagine, need to t- <laughs> yeah, we need to take a few commercial breaks. So we will be back with more right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have been listening to President Biden, who uh, got up this morning and decided, you know what? I think I'm going to have a news conference because, you know, I get these White House briefs every morning about where the president's going to be, who he's going to talk to. There was nothing in this morning's calendar that said, oh, you know what? I think I'm going to call a news conference. I think I'm going to talk to everybody. So he was clearly feeling very good about this midterm election, and with good reason. As President Biden said, it was a good day for democracy yesterday. Turnout was way more than expected. Young people voting in much larger numbers than they did certainly in 2018, and frankly, more than they usually do for an election. There was a lot going on. There was a lot to be happy about. If... Like right now, at this moment in time, both the Senate and the House control undecided. There are some races that are going to give us their results in the next few days. Uh, The speculation at this moment is that the Republicans might cross that 218 seat threshold that they need for control. But it will probably be 
a day or two before we know the final results. And in the Senate, we may not know who maintains or wins control of the Senate for weeks. There are three races still out. Nevada, which is very close, but might go R. Arizona, which is not as close and looks like it's going to be in the D column. And Georgia, where it was so close, there's going to be a runoff election in some four weeks from now. It could boil down to Georgia. Um, remember when Raphael Warnock went up against Kelly Leffler? He was expected to lose that race. But Dems decided, you know, to, to really go after that seat, to do everything they could to support him, and they did. And he won. So that's where we stand right now. President Biden saying during his speech today that he was planning to uh, have a conversation with Kevin McCarthy later today. He was also asked about 2024, a couple of different things. He said that uh, he was in no hurry. You know, he's sort of, it was weird the way he answered. It was kind of like, well, you know, guys, I've kind of made it clear that I plan to run again. But as far as making it official, you know, it's not just my decision. It's a family decision. And we're all going to, like, sit around and talk about it. And I don't feel any hurry to have that discussion or make that announcement. So there. Um, He was also asked by one reporter whether he would rather go up against uh, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis in 2024. And he uh, he deftly pivoted with his answer and he looked at the reporter and he smiled that special Joe Biden smile that has just a tint of menace in it. And he said that he that he thought it would be great to see the two of them go after each other, which if Ron DeSantis makes himself a candidate, an official candidate for the presidency, whether Donald Trump is in the race or not, you know, Donald Trump is going to go crazy. Unless somehow Ron DeSantis cuts some backroom deal with Trump, which seems unlikely since Ron DeSantis has done everything in his power to distance himself from Donald Trump, made a very public statement that he was not seeking Donald Trump's endorsement for his re-election bid. I think Donald Trump won't be able to help himself, whether he's a candidate or not. I I think that he will do everything in his power to bloody Ron DeSantis. I think President Biden is absolutely right about that. Um, he was also, you know, again, polls. We've seen, we saw in 2016, We saw again for the midterms, most polls are wrong. Either it's because they don't have good samples. Maybe the people who are giving them information are not giving them truthful information. Maybe they can't figure out how to reach every representative kind of voter. Polls were not right in 2016 when they told us, don't worry, Hillary Clinton's got this in the bag. And they weren't right For the midterms, where it was like, oh, red wave, red wave. Oops. Somebody, one of the commentators said, red wave, 
more like a red puddle. So one of the reporters got up and said, polling shows that two thirds of people, I don't know if these are general people, I don't know if these are Democratic people, but two thirds of people say, oh, Joe Biden shouldn't run again. And what do you, you know, what do you say to them? And he looked at her and he smiled and he said, watch me, watch me. You know, regardless of his age, this man has accomplished a stunning amount of legislation in two years. He has done in two years what many presidents couldn't accomplish in four. How much will he get done in his second two years? Well, that's going to depend on a lot of things. If we can hang on to the Senate, we at least have a shot at bringing, if the Republicans control the House, we have at least a shot of bringing them to the negotiating table. Though they may just simply delight in thwarting President Biden's every move. You know, that's what we talked about before the midterms. Republicans don't, it's not that they really want to accomplish anything. They just want to make sure that Democrats don't accomplish anything. Uh, He was also asked about these um, statements by various more extreme Republicans that if they take the House of Representatives, they're going to start all kinds of investigations. They're going to investigate Hunter Biden and they're going to investigate Joe Biden and they're going to investigate Kamala Harris and they want to see Hunter Biden's laptop and maybe they'll even start impeaching. Yeah, that's it. We'll impeach President Biden. Well, they were asked, well, what would you impeach him for? We don't know. It doesn't matter. We might impeach President Biden. We'll impeach Kamala Harris. He was asked about that because if the Republicans take a hold of the House of Representatives, the power to impeach would be within their grasp. And um, he called it comedy. He said it's almost comedy when he hears these things. And, you know, he's not wrong. If a president is doing something wrong and the other side of the aisle starts impeachment against him in the House, the way we did with Donald Trump, we didn't do it just because people think Donald Trump is a horrible, bad man. We felt that Donald Trump had committed crimes for which he needed to be held accountable. That was why he was impeached twice. So to say that you're going to impeach someone, but you don't know why yet is absurd. It's ridiculous. It shows the world that you are using the impeachment mechanism as simply a way to wreak some kind of revenge on your perceived enemies. I bet Mitch McConnell regrets to this day that he couldn't sway the Senate to um, to go along and vote to kick Donald Trump out of office. I if, if, I bet if Mitch McConnell were being really honest with us, that was that would be one of his big political regrets of his life. Mitch McConnell wants to get rid of Donald Trump and make him go away, probably almost more than Democrats do. Because 
ultimately, whether he thinks he's a good man or a bad man, I don't think makes any difference because McConnell's all about power. And Donald Trump is a threat to Republican power. Which is why when President Biden was asked about the whole, do you want to run against Trump or DeSantis? He smiled. He's beaten Trump before. And I think he has every confidence that he can do it again. And so do a lot of the Republicans in power. They've got a Trump problem. They can't get rid of him. And yet, how many of the Trump candidates who won their primaries lost in the midterm elections? Way too many of them. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to be talking to my good friend, DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Bury, right after this. Listen to the Tom Hartman radio program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Chris Bury, longtime network newsman, currently DePaul journalist in residence. Mr. Bury, how are you today? Chris, are you there? Can you hear me? Just lost Joan here. Okay. Um, Andy, Chris just lost me. I can hear him, but he apparently can't hear me. Okay. Um, Andy uh, is going to be calling Chris on the phone. Um, Chris, as you know, was a longtime network newsman, a correspondent at the network level, traveled all over and covered lots of things, including elections. And uh, currently is teaching at DePaul University, students who are very lucky to have him. I have a feeling that Mr. Bury was uh, keeping an eye on the (laughs) midterms last night. You know, government geeks, what can you do? There's nothing you can do to restrain them. Uh, uh, Do we have Chris? Andy? Okay, um, should we move on to something else or do you think you can get him? Oh, okay. Uh, a minute or two. All righty. Well, then we will just we will just wait for for Chris Beery. Um, I might as well talk to you a little bit more about President Biden's long news conference today. We were expecting him to come out about three o'clock. He ended up uh, coming out about three fifteen, and he was out there uh, for the better part of an hour taking questions. First, he talked about the midterm elections. And it was kind of it was kind of a subdued victory lap because people really thought a lot of people thought I didn't think and I know you didn't think. But there were a lot of people who thought, oh, the you know, the the Democrats, they're just going to get creamed. They're absolutely going to get creamed. A lot of the polling was unreliable. And people like I told you, Michael Moore, the activist filmmaker, he was asked by Joanne Reed, oh, you know, Red Reed. It's like, no. He's like, you know, people are discounting women. Like women have suddenly forgotten that they've lost their rights. He said, no, Joy. He said that turnout is going to be good. Democrats are going to do a good job. And it was, and we did. The New York Times uh, was able to pivot to their digital editions later. But obviously the print edition has to be locked up at a certain time so it can be printed and delivered. Their 
If you got the New York Times on your doorstep today, the headline was GOP collects early wins in pivotal vote. All along, the New York Times was saying and claiming that their polling showed that it was going to be a night to be a Republican. Kevin McCarthy, the day before the midterms, was telling anybody who would listen that it was going to be this red wave. Republicans were going to be back, baby. And as of today, Wednesday, November 9th, 4.37 p.m. Central Time, both the House and the Senate are too close to call. Yeah, we we have a feeling. We see predictions. Some people are saying, well, yeah, the races are close. We can't say for sure, but this is how it looks like they're going to go. We may very well end up with control of the Senate. At the very least, I'm told by Andy that we have Chris now. Hey, Chris, you there? Hey, Joan. Uh, sorry, it uh, something just uh, cut out there. You were uh, in my ear, and then all of a sudden you were not. Yeah, I could hear you, but you, but you couldn't hear me, um, which is probably the way it should be most of the time. But I would imagine that last night that you were having some fun watching these returns. What was going through your mind? Well, I had a bunch of students and uh, some pizza from uh, Melnati's and we were watching Woo. the returns, and I had some students out at different uh, election headquarters so they could get the uh, the experience of covering uh, election night. Uh, but what was going through my mind, a couple of things. You know, one, you know, what a night for uh, Ron DeSantis, um, who had a blowout uh, victory in, in Florida. So a tremendous night for DeSantis, which meant a really bad night for uh, Donald Trump. Because uh, DeSantis and Trump obviously um, can't stand each other. And um, Trump has got to be very worried that DeSantis did so well in Florida, number one. And number two, in the exit polls, a huge majority of Republicans said they preferred DeSantis over Trump in what has become, you know, a key state for Republicans. So. You know, I think DeSantis was a big winner. I mean, Biden, in a sense, was a, a winner, as you suggested earlier. Oh, before because, we wait a minute, before we move on yeah. to Biden, I, I want to ask yeah. you, you, you know, you've studied and watched Donald Trump, as have I. A lot of his candidates did not fare that well. Ron DeSantis, as you say, sworn enemies did do a really good job. If you're Donald Trump, what's your next move? Trump's ego is so enormous and his narcissism is so pronounced. I think he's going to go ahead and announce and, you know, think that uh, the MAGA crowd is going to just overwhelm DeSantis in other states, if not in Florida. But, you know, I think that it was a really clear message to Republicans last night. Both in you know the Trump candidates uh, who lost badly in most cases, not all, but in most cases, in the strength of DeSantis, and you know in the exit polls where people were asked you know how they felt about Trump and his negatives were incredible. So the Republican Party is going to look at this and go, do we really want 
this guy is our standard bearer in, mm-hmm. in 2024. And, and I think, you know, we're going to start seeing a big drift. You know, two days after his announcement, Mike Pence has got a town hall scheduled on CNN. Um, so he's already certainly splitting off uh, from Trump. Not that he's got a chance of winning, but, you know, there is going to be an atrophy uh, of his support. And after he gets indicted, which I do think <laughs> is highly likely, um, you know, I think I think it's going to be even worse. And Republicans are going to be in a real quandary. They've been cowardly about facing up to this now for years. Uh, but push is going to come to shove. I think you're absolutely right. I think Donald Trump is going to jump into the race. And here's where I th- it'll be interesting, because I I know Ron DeSantis is popular and it kind of worries me that he I, I don't know if we've talked about this, but people have noticed that in his speaking cadence and almost in the way he holds his body, it's almost like he's trying to mirror Trump. He's he's changed the way he moves and the way he talks. And it's now kind of a Trumpian echo. So I don't know how smart this guy is. You'd think he'd want to be the best Ron DeSantis instead of a second-rate Trump. But if he's smart, I think he sits back and lets the Trump campaign unfold. And one of two things is going to happen. Either Donald Trump brings that old charisma, that old razzle-dazzle that won over so many people before and becomes the really popular candidate in again, or Donald Trump doesn't bring the razzle-dazzle, or the crowds that are there for the razzle-dazzle are tiny, in which case Ron DeSantis lets him go for a few months, and when he appears to be at his weakest, Ron DeSantis jumps into the race as some kind of Republican savior. No, I think that's a highly likely scenario. And the other part of this is pure political coalitions. If you look at last night and you look at 2020, Republicans in the suburbs, in places like the suburbs of Chicago, and particularly the women in those suburbs, um, are not going to support a second or a third, rather, Trump candidacy. It's really clear. The writing is on the wall. Um, There's just no way. If only Donald Um, Trump could read, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, his negatives are enormous. They're actually much higher than Hillary Clinton's negatives were in 2016. So, you know, he's doing this for, uh, you know, his vanity, uh, his fortune. Obviously, it's great fundraising for him. But the reality is it's going to be very difficult for him to 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 mount a, a successful challenge. And, you know, we don't know what the legal troubles are going to be. But I think we can make a pretty good guess that he's going to be under at least two indictments, one in the state of Georgia um, and one from the Department of Justice regarding the documents that he took to Mar-a-Lago. Do you really think I mean, I thought you were going to say Georgia and then, you know, maybe something out of a different state, New York or something. Do you really think Merrick Garland's DOJ is going to indict Donald Trump? Do you really believe that? Yes, I do. Um, I think Merrick Garland is uh, a fastidious um, defender of the Department of Justice. It's deep uh, within his bones, the idea that no one is above the law. I mean, he says it 
all the time, and I believe he, he does mean it. I think the, the evidence is uh, overwhelming. Um, so my, my guess is sometime within the next few months, um, the Department of Justice is going to indict Donald Trump for illegally holding uh, documents, including some of the most classified documents in the American government, illegally uh, at his residence. Yes, I do believe that. Okay, of all the things that Donald Trump has done and all of the crimes that Donald Trump has committed, you think that's the one, the documents, is going to be the one that indicts him? Because here's my fear. I think that people have sometimes a limited understanding of these kinds of indictments and proceedings. And my fear is that a lot of people will be like, well, you know, so he took some papers. He sh- anybody could do that. You know, maybe they got stuck inside a book he wasn't reading, um, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, he violated this law, you know, or or if they if we had proof, he sold these secrets to the Saudis, whereas Oh, well, you know, he took some papers he shouldn't have taken, and we're going to indict him for that. I, I don't know that a lot of people will grasp that uh, the intricacies of that kind of thing. Well, I think it's a, a pretty simple case on uh, two counts. One is that um, there's evidence that, you know, he had the documents long after uh, the subpoenas came asking for them. And number two, there appears to be really clear evidence of obstruction where these documents were moved, uh, presumably under the direction of the former president. So I think the case is going to be pretty clear. And the third part of it, of course, is that according to the reporting, at least what we've heard from the Washington Post, is that, I mean, these were not just his love letters with Kim Jong-un. <laughs> these documents included um, information about the nuclear weapons programs of our allies and adversaries. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, you know, super top secret compartmentalized, uh, compartmented, you know, intelligence. Um, I think that's pretty damning. Um, so I think it's actually going to be easier for the Justice Department to prove this case than January 6th. Um, and the Electoral College, because I think so much of that was coded, uh, misdirection. You're not going to find Trump's fingerprints. It's going to be open to interpretation. You know, you can read the speech on January 6th in different ways. And mm-hmm. I just think that's really a hard one to, to prosecute compared to I got top secret nuclear documents stuffed into my you know office desk in my resort in Florida. I think people mm-hmm. are going to be able to understand that one. I'm speaking with DePaul journalist and residence Chris Bury. I want to talk to him about the midterms, and I have gotten myself severely off track. We're going to take a quick break and be back with the midterm discussion after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. I'll second guest dinners with friends because they can be interrupted by diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, or oily stools. It turns out I have EPI, or exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, which means I'm missing the enzymes needed to digest food. My doctor prescribed Creon, pancrelipase, an oral prescription medication that replaces pancreatic digestive enzymes. Creon treats EPI due to cystic fibrosis, chronic pancreatitis, pancreatectomy, or other conditions. Creon may increase your chance of fibrosing colonopathy, a rare bowel disorder. Tell your doctor if you have a history of intestinal blockage or scarring or 
thickening of your bowel wall. If you're allergic to pork or if you have gout, kidney problems, or worsening of painful swollen joints, call your doctor if you have any unusual or severe gastrointestinal symptoms or allergic reactions. Take Creon as directed by your doctor and always with food. Do not chew capsules as this may cause mouth irritation. Other side effects may include blood sugar changes, gas, dizziness, sore throat, and cough. These are not all the side effects of Creon. Creon is the number one prescribed EPI treatment. Ask your doctor about Creon for EPI and visit creoninfo.com or call 800-633-9110 to learn more. That's C-R-E-O-N-Info.com. If you're buying a new home, refinancing the one you've got, maybe you want a VA loan or a reverse mortgage, do what I did. Call Team Hochberg, our trusted local lender. David respects veterans and wanted to do more than say thank you for your service, so he did. To thank veterans for their commitment to our country, Team Hochberg will be waiving their loan origination costs. That's about 1250 bucks. The next time Team Hochberg originates a veteran's VA, FHA, or conventional loan. To thank the over million veterans living in the Chicagoland area for their service to our country, Team Hochberg is going to waive their loan origination fees the next time they originate a veteran's VA, FHA, or conventional loan. Team Hochberg helped me and thousands of veterans get mortgages over the past 20 years, but they can't help if you don't call 855-56-DAVID or go online 56david.com. That number again is 855-563-2843 or online 56david.com. Lower.com equal housing lender, NMLS 1124061. Are you the parent of a two to seven year old? Listen closely for an exciting free radio offer. By now you've probably heard of ABC Mouse, the Parents Choice Award winning online learning program that's actually changing the lives of early learners everywhere. ABC Mouse is like a little one on one teacher. It has helped her so much. Right now we're offering a special radio promo to try it free for a month, but you have to go to abcmouse.com slash radio to claim your free month. That's ABC cmouse.com slash radio sponsored by age of learning is your job recession proof now might be the perfect time to switch careers and become an it professional with my computer career it is listed as one of the top recession proof professions you could have your dream job in just months not years no experience needed take classes online or on campus and financial aid is available to those who qualify including the gi bill go to mycomputercareer.edu and take the free career evaluation it's not rocket science it's mycomputercareer.edu because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Bury. Uh, we started talking about the midterms, and then I took him off into a wild tangent. So I would like to refocus my discussion on the midterm elections. I never for a minute believed that there was going to be a big red wave. I never for a minute, Chris, thought that women were suddenly over Roe v. Wade or that young people wouldn't realize for the first time ever that man who we have in office really affects the way we live. So I was, you know, I was pleasantly, pleasantly pleased with the results, but I wasn't shocked. How did you feel going into this? Did you uh, believe the polling? Well, I wasn't sure about a red wave, but um, predictably, I mean, since World War II, the president's party has lost in the average of about 26 congressional seats during the midterm. Um, And given that uh, President Biden was dealing with some of the the highest inflation that any president has seen, 
uh, since uh, World War II, uh, it seemed that he was probably on track to lose somewhere in the neighborhood of 20, you know, 20 to 30 seats. Of course, Republicans were predicting, you know, far more than that. And you have to just look back to the to the last midterms in 2018 after Trump's first two years. And you know, that's when the Democrats picked up 41 or 42 seats. So um, I was surprised that um, the Republican uh, number wasn't a little bit higher. I mean, we still don't know uh, what the final number is going to be. Uh, my focus was always on the Senate. Um, and now, as, as you mentioned, you know, we're all eyes are going to be on Georgia December 6th because Although we still don't know Arizona and Nevada, Arizona, it looks like uh, Mark Kelly is poised to hang on. But in Nevada, it looks like the Republican, Adam Laxalt, has a, you know, he's got a 2% lead over the incumbent, Catherine Cortez Masto. Uh, You know, some votes still have to be counted. We're not going to know until apparently Friday. So, you know, who knows? But it could it could easily come down to this runoff on December 6th in Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. I'm guessing that it it, that it probably will. You know, uh, looking at the races in Illinois, I know that early on, uh, Lauren Underwood was a target of Republicans. You know, she hadn't won her previous election by a huge margin and everything I heard was that, you know, that's where they were going. They thought she was vulnerable. And then all of a sudden, a few weeks before the election, it just seemed like her support solidified. They seemed to back off. And then all of a sudden, their focus was on Sean Caston. Oh, wait a minute. This is the guy we could knock off. Let's let's put our let's put our eggs in this basket. Luckily, I was a little concerned because when I stopped watching the returns last night, the Caston race had not been called. Luckily, I woke up this morning to a Sean Caston victory, but it was um, it was scary. Yeah, both those both those seats are uh, seats that have gone back and forth in Illinois between Republicans and Democrats. The Democrats now have two strong um, Congress people. I mean, I think Lauren Underwood has really emerged as uh, one of the leading voices. She sponsored, I believe, more legislation than any other member of Congress uh, over the last couple of years or close to that. So she is really uh, a force to be reckoned with. She's an expert on health care, of course. Kasten is an expert on the uh, environment and clean energy. So those are two people who have real substance behind them. They're not just, you know, politicians in it for the power. Um, and I, I'm guessing that voters in those districts, um, which are, you know, pretty uh, highly educated, affluent districts, that um, voters recognize that they have, you know, people of, of consequence in those in those races. But just given the nature of politics, those two are always going to be you mm-hmm. know, back and forth. And, and they have gone back and forth over the last 20 years. Yeah, I, I think that it's, um, we, you know, we always look at Illinois elections and we're like, oh, well, it's a blue state. But uh, elections matter and every vote matters. And I don't know how many times we need to learn that lesson before it before it sinks in. What other races were you looking at last night? Well, I was looking at Wisconsin, uh, which was, you know, very interesting, uh, where basically there was a split uh, split race where the incumbent governor, uh, Tony Evers, won pretty handily, considering what a divided state it is, beating the Trump-backed businessman 
uh, Tim Michaels um, and the Democrat in the Senate race, Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor, lost a very close race to, you know, a really unpopular Republican incumbent, Ron Johnson. But Johnson spent enormous money. He defined, I think, Barnes very early uh, in a negative way. And I just think Barnes had an uphill fight from the beginning. I saw a lot of the commercials and they were really interesting. Tony Evers ran a super smart campaign where he had these commercials, like 30 second commercials, and they were split screen where on one side, a very simple message, Tony Evers is bringing costs down, down, down. And then the other side, his opponent, Tim Michaels, you know, opposes abortion, uh, even in the case of rape, incest, and the life of the mother. So the the contrast was really clear. And even though they weren't related, you know, one was talking about inflation and one was talking about abortion within 30 seconds, some of the most effective commercials I've seen in the cycle. Chris, I'm sorry we don't have more time. It's been such a busy day and a busy week. Uh, take care. I want to have you back on again. I want to find out about your students reporting on election night. That sounds interesting. Uh, take care of All yourself. Right, Driving it Thank on, Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening. Good night. <laughs>